your name correctly for me. Julia Tatiana Bailey. And I assume you use the Tatiana because there's another t- Julia Bailey out there? Uh, well, it's just a more common name. And uh, well, when I started um, developing an interest in Russian art, people were like, why are you interested in Russian art? So one of my middle names is Tatiana. It's my grandmother's name, who's Russian. So it made sense to sort of absorb it into the name I use. And I really like it as a name. And now I have the issue that people assume I am Russian and start speaking Russian to me. And then I have to say, oh, you know, I, I can speak Russian, but just uh, just as someone who's learned it as an adult. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And so you are uh, you are from the UK. Mm-hmm. And one thing that always interests me is like, how do arts people, creative people be, come to being? So like, is it nature versus nurture kind of an mm-hmm. idea? So like, were your parents or your family members creative in some way? Did you, were you influenced by a teacher or some experience? Like, how did you get to this career path? Yeah. So now that I'm kind of on the career path, it makes it a lot it makes a lot more sense because I look back and my grandmother is actually a Russian artist. So now I'm a specialist in Russian art. It makes a lot more sense. But actually, when I was younger, I was much more interested in music and languages. And I did my undergraduate in music. And it was through music that I came to develop an interest in the visual arts. Um, I actually majored in musical composition and uh, my composition teacher had this big poster of Kandinsky above his desk and I was always sitting there when we were discussing composition and and saying, and I think the work was called Symphony or or some name like that, it had a musical name. Um, And I became really interested in this picture and I kept saying, have you tried to play that? You know, do you do you have some idea of what it would sound like? Do you know whether it's influenced by a particular piece of music or something Kandinsky was listening to? And so I kind of developed this understanding of how the visual arts and the musical arts are both responding to similar debates, similar um, you know interests. And, well, it's all, it's yeah. all creativity, basically, yeah. and it all comes from similar places. It's just different outlets. Absolutely. So it was through. So for me, I I um, was more naturally a, a attracted to music and music as a practitioner. I play piano and saxophone and I compose. And it's through that that I became more um, intellectually interested in the visual arts. Um, but I'd say as a practitioner, I'm more musician. And I looked through your CV and we've had a little discussions that you've mm-hmm. been, uh, we, we've run in a little bit of a same circle. You were in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. for a little while. Yes. Um, and so that was with the Smithsonian. Yes, I was there for a year, um, which was fantastic. It, it was also because I actually did my PhD and my master's uh, part-time whilst working. Um, so it was a fantastic year where I could focus full time for a year to finish off my PhD. And without that, I just don't think I'd have been able to get so intellectually engaged with the subject matter, really delve into the archives, take that amount of time to, to really look at the material. So yeah, it was a fantastic year. And there were, um, about 20, 25 of us who were fellows just attached to the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Mm. Uh, so we were all in... Uh, the same room all had our little areas our desks and there was much there was a good feeling of community you were engaging with other people's work having intellectual discussions it forced me to 
to up my game because American academic standards are really high. So it was really? it was a fantastic year. In, com- in comparison to the UK? Um, well, I think when doing a PhD, because the Americans have to do such a broad amount of things to get their PhD, so they usually have to learn languages, they've got to do exams, they've got to do teaching. Um, usually the courses are very long, so it's usually between five and seven years full-time, whereas to do a PhD in the UK is three years full-time. Oh, yeah. um, and it's just the thesis normally. I mean, for an arts PhD or for a non-practical PhD, if you're doing a science degree did, or if did you're you doing... Just call an arts PhD a non-practical PhD? I'm thinking about if you did something like a fine arts degree or you did a yeah (laughs) or you did a musical degree then there's a certain amount of actually kind of creating something and then writing right so more of a theoretical degree yeah a humanities PhD I guess yeah that's fine but that's interesting because like in the United States we look to the UK as like the preeminent academic structure like Mm -hmm. we always look to the UK but you're saying that the the academic sort of rigor for a PhD in the United States is a bit more intense? Well, I get the feeling that when you do a PhD in the US, you're being trained to become an, an academic. You're being trained to go into a university to teach yourself. So a, a big part of your PhD is training you up to be a teacher. To So you have a lot of teaching courses. You've got to kind of develop a wide understanding of the debates rather than your particular subject matter, whereas... I feel in the UK it's much more focused on becoming a subject specialist in your particular area. And that's why you do a lot of the developing to become an academic, I think, after you've got the PhD and after you go into teaching. And you can do you can do teaching on the side, teaching assistant work, but it's much more open to what you're going to do after your PhD, I think, in the UK. It's not less of an assumption that you'll go into academia, I think. Okay. I, I, you know, I mean, this is just, just that's my no. personal experience. This entire podcast is just <laughs> your personal experience. Yeah. A, it will not be held as, as canon. You, <laughs> you, can, you can say whatever you want. This is all your, only your personal yeah. experiences and all this. So. And I mean, I did it quite differently. Like, like I said, I, I um, studied part-time. So I actually did my master's over two years. My PhD took six and a half years part-time whilst working so I was maintaining a career as well a professional career and uh, yeah so I, I've had quite a different experience you know I used to occasionally I had to go to a lecturer uh, to a lecture and then I'd sort of run in at the last minute and sort of run out at the end because you know I had other things uh, other responsibilities um, oh, we all had to yeah do that. I mean I, I, I had a time in my career where I was actually a, a roadie where I, I toured around with rock mm. and roll bands so like I would literally like schedule all my classes Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then mm-hmm. I would go on tour Thursday, oh, Friday, Saturday, great. Sunday, and then yeah. come back Monday morning, like mm-hmm. driving back Monday morning to get mm-hmm. to class at 9 a.m. So like, yeah, we all do yeah. stuff like that. It's great fun. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I wouldn't, I'm not sure I could have got through it doing it full time, just, you know, head down for three years, just thinking about your subject. I think it would drive me a bit crazy because I, you know, I like to be active and thinking about a variety of things and doing using my practical brain as well, not just my, you know, one that's in the clouds thinking about theoretical things. Is that what you do every day? Is that your <laughs> job now, just thinking about theoretical no, things? No, no, that's that's why I enjoy curating because it's so varied and it's it's so many parts to it and it's very practical as well. You know, it's a form of project management in many ways. 
it's uh, you know there's a certain amount of administrative side that no one enjoys but needs to be done um, kind of thinking about stories everyone complains like academics do in a university everyone complains that they don't get enough time to research and to think so it's always the way the idea of this podcast is I come from the United States, I've lived in the Middle East, I've, I've lived in multiple places in the United States, I've been a professor, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm an, a practicing artist, and then um, now I'm here in mm -hmm. Europe. And I realized once I got here that having been in academia, that I have no idea how the arts world mm -hmm. actually works yeah. because I've been off doing academic stuff. Yeah. And, and so like students keep turning to me like, hey, how can I blah, 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 blah. How can I yeah. get a curator? How can I meet a curator? How can I get a gallery? How can I do this? Mm -hmm. And then of course there's the other questions, you know, curators go, how can I meet people at, at museums? How can mm -hmm. I find more patrons? How can I, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I realized I have no idea. Mm. And you're not the only one because I've been in, uh, and you know, I'm sure you know more than you realize, but um, I've been in classes with academics and some of the things they say, you're just like, but, but this is not why, when they're kind of saying things about, oh, why a curator has made this decision. Right. And uh, they always assume that it's for intellectual reasons or because of their, their understanding or theoretical position. And as a museum worker, you look at that and you go, they probably didn't have the budget or there was probably, you know, copyright restrictions or things like or that. Or insurance you know? was too much. Yeah, absolutely. Or travel costs. Or yeah, it's the, always or, money. Or, or the, <laughs> per, or the money. person who owns it or... or an institution that owns it just doesn't like you all yeah whatever for whatever yeah. reason like there's so much that goes into it yeah mm -hmm. i mean the the whole idea that i named the podcast the wise fool because basically mm -hmm. what i what i came to believe is that everybody's very wise like you know your specialization mm -hmm. and your thing very well but there are lots of things about the arts industry you don't know mm -hmm. same with me i know my thing very well mm -hmm. but there's a lot of stuff i don't know yeah, and i believe absolutely. everybody's like that so mm -hmm. what i'm trying to do is basically have a lot of conversations and hopefully pick out like this little insight from you and another little insight from somebody else and slowly sort of piece together some sense of how it all functions through lots of conversations mm -hmm. i don't expect any one person to have everything because that's <laughs> ridiculous yeah they don't as much as I wish they did I want there to be a system I wish there was just like a system to do it'd be so nice like I was thinking before coming to this podcast I was like how do artists get on the radar of a curator for potentially being since you work at a museum we'll say in a museum exhibition mm -hmm. so like, how does that even happen well, museum uh, curators, if they're doing their job properly, they should be going out and looking for the artists as well. Um, you know, it's I think that's part of the job is to actually kind of go to galleries, go to uh, see things, uh, graduate shows, things like that. So I suppose, you know, the first way is to get representation in some way, whether it's a gallerist is going to show your work because mm. then they're going to be doing the job of uh, promoting you and making sure that they develop the relationship with the curators and, you know, that your work's seen. Uh, but you can also self-publish or, you know, create your own exhibitions as well, get your work out there. But, of course, then it requires a lot of a lot of uh, work and, you know, some investment usually that detracts from actually creating the work so you know and not everyone who's an artist is going to be 
capable of doing that or want to do that. So, or have um, the funding to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, curators have very limited time as well because of the um, restrictions on the job. You know, there's so much that needs to be done. Everyone's always short staff. That's always the way around and, the world. And short on budget. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I really enjoy meeting artists. I really enjoy seeing artists work as well as, as that. I'm very aware of not wanting to kind of make any promises or you know look like I can definitely do something even if I'm excited about someone's work you know I'll have a hope of sharing it in some way but actually kind of going through the decision process of being able to put an exhibition and put it on and get the budgeting behind it that's a long process and that's something I would like to hear about like I mean I'm Mm -hmm. I'm somewhat aware of it I've been involved with museums and galleries and things like this but uh, tell tell me sort of like your experiences of something uh, some sort of an exhibition that you were a p- engaged with participant curator of that sort of went from idea to f- completion to exhibition like what are all the steps how you know because like while you may love some idea the board or your director or mm-hmm. the funders it, it, there's so many different layers of things that could easily fall through mm-hmm. regardless of any individual's passion for something mm-hmm Probably the exhibition I've enjoyed working on the most so far is when I worked at um, Tate Modern on the Soul of a Nation exhibition. So subtitles is uh, Art in the Age of Black Power. And it was uh, from the mid-1960s to the mid-1980s, basically starting off with the March of Washington and looking at how African-American artists particularly were saying how did they respond to the kind of fight for civil rights in the United States and then it's looking at the different debates amongst different artists you know how they felt they should they be representing themselves in their community should they be producing the same sort of work that white artists were being celebrated for at that time okay slow down why did that so when it started what was the the thing, the impetus that like began mm-hmm. the idea of even creating that exhibition? So that was my colleague um, Mark Godfrey, who's working was interested in abstraction. Really, um, he's a specialist in abstract American art, particularly or abstract American European art of the of that period of the mid twentieth century. And he's just uh, privately started amassing this material about these debates among among artists at that time about abstraction and particularly african-american artists and uh, so he came to it from quite a theoretical point of view it was originally going to be some sort of anthology of texts um looking at these debates so these um little known articles people had written and so discussions they'd had and they hadn't been amassed in one place because they generally been in small magazines or self-published magazines you know with small circulation um so he wanted to bring those together and then had the idea of develop developing that into an exhibition um so what was what i enjoyed about that was it was a very research-based exhibition which isn't always the case you know other exhibitions are chosen because they decide to do a retrospective of a major artist and you know it's uh, like the Giacometti exhibition I've done now um, which is the first one to be held in the Czech Republic and that's a very very different sort of idea you know you know he's very well-known artist we were working with the foundation in Paris to put on the exhibition so we knew the collection of works we'd be bringing together Um, but again like how does something like that come about so Mm -hmm. let's start with that one from the beginning of it like so did the did the 
gallery here in the Czech Republic approach Giacom the Giacometti mm -hmm. Foundation or Giacometti Foundation sort of say we would like people to have some retrospectives who is interested in a retrospective? I think, because I, it was before my time, but I think it came out of the retrospective happening at Tate Modern. And that caught the eye of some someone in the senior management here. Um, and they felt it was very um, strong exhibition. It had uh, performed very well. It had been, you know, very celebrated. Um, and uh, and that had been a joint co uh, joint um, project between the Fondation Giacometti in Paris and Tate Modern. And yes, and the Fondation, their remit is to use these works to kind of develop Giacometti's name internationally. So I don't know who made the approach to who, but um, our director of exhibitions began speaking to the Fondation about working together on the first big show of Giacometti's work to be shown in Czech Republic. And not even the first big show, the first dedicated exhibition uh, to be shown in Czech Republic. But it's take. I think that was you know two three years ago. It takes a yeah. long time. The well, gestation yeah. of these yeah. projects. I was, I was yeah. talking to my wife about this. She was like, "How long does it take to put this exhibition together?" And mm -hmm. I was like, "I would guess probably two to three years for that yes. particular exhibition." Yeah. But some exhibitions can take up to five years, ten years. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, depending. absolutely. The harder it's going to be to secure the loans, the quicker you need to get started. Or funding. Absolutely. It's funding, but particularly if, uh, you know, there were some artists and their works, wherever they are in the world, they're constantly in demand for loans. There's always shows about them going on around the world. Um, and, you know, obviously these works can't constantly be in tour. Well, it depends on the medium, but, uh, you know, some of the works need to rest. They need to be looked after. They need to go through conservation. That No one wants to see them fall apart because they've been sent all around the world nonstop. So, yeah, I saw that with the... With yeah. the the, um, the Leonardo da Vinci exhibition mm, right now. They're yes. talking about how they're not certain things are not traveling to mm. the Louvre because of fear of them being damaged. Yes, and they sent Vitruvian Man, and mm -hmm. yeah, they're not too happy about it <laughs> back in Italy. No, they're not. <laughs> no, not at all. All right, so when so when an exhibition like well, I'm, I'm sort of more point point of like so let's say you come up with an exhibition. Mm -hmm. What's the process for you as a curator who already works for this institution? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to make an exhibition from scratch, mm -hmm. so you, how does it work? So, obviously, let's say I've had the idea because <laughs> that's even a longer process to come up with the idea or explain what interests you. Um, first, well, well, but I mean, but even when you come up with the mm -hmm. idea, I mean, like for instance. Like, do you have, do you have to take into consideration before you even pitch it? Going, will people be interested in this, mm -hmm. or, or or do you, are you trying to are you a bit of more of a purist of like, I think this is great, and I think if we offer it, people will like it, or do you have to tailor your pitches already to the potential yes. of clientele? I take actually another direction because I spent 10 years working in marketing before I moved across into curating. So my point of view would probably be to think about what is the institution? How do we want to pitch the institution? How do we want to present that to the public, to the world? How do we want to... Um, what objectives are we trying to fulfill through this exhibition and how does it link into the museum brand? So the programming of the museum itself, Absolutely. so the long-term yeah. programming. Yeah, so I'd be thinking about, you know, um, I like exhibitions ideally that can link through to the museum collection if it has a 
has a collection because that's a very important part of the museum's work but often it's under discussed and it's under recognized by the public so I think also it kind of answers that question of why so if you've got a work by the artists or some artists that are in the collection or it's an opportunity to build the collection so to actually acquire works through the exhibition because they link to other works in the collection or, or gaps that you're trying to fill you know National Gallery of Prague has been trying to fill gaps in the sort of 1960s, 1970s artists that we didn't acquire at that time because of the political situation, but are very important artists in terms of Czech heritage and Czech national identity. So you've got to consider all of those things when you're, uh, when you're developing your ideas as well. Okay, so let's say you came up with an idea. Mm-hmm. How does it go? So... You're thinking about the space. I'm sorry. I know this is, this is probably, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're just like, are you kidding? That is such a big, massive idea. Like, yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I think it's yeah. important uh, from the outset to think about space and what space it might be in. Okay. Uh, so what gallery space? Because then you need to think about size and um, the scope of what you're going to do and, you know, what's reasonable. And that, so you do need to think early on about what funding you think you might get for it, because obviously that's going to affect, again, your ambitions for the exhibition. Sure, yeah, more funding, bigger space. Yes, exactly. Um, And then early on, I try and identify the works that I think we want to incorporate in. So which are the really key works? Obviously, you're doing a lot of background reading. You're going through, going for a kind of National Gallery Library and the Um, Czech National Library and any other kind of important collections, reading all the um, previous books and catalogues where these artists or artists or artists are shown to really get a sense of exactly what their work is, to see as many of the works as possible, going and seeing the works in your collection. So, So, I mean, a little part of that, like, I've always been under the understanding, and maybe I'm wrong on this, that basically like when a curator is a head curator of a particular exhibition basically they become a master of all knowledge about that topic during the time of coordinating that exhibition Mm -hmm. yeah well mm, i wouldn't say a master you know you're going to become a master if you're in if you're an academic specialist who's engaged with that subject matter for decades um i think the thing about curators is if they're doing multiple exhibitions they've got to develop their knowledge and and quickly and think about how they can communicate that to people but unfortunately you generally don't have the the opportunity to really engage as deeply as you'd like okay so just to be clear for the listeners (laughs) so they understand sort of what we're alluding to on this so what you're saying is is like basically at any given moment you are probably working on a minimum i'd say of about three to five exhibitions Mm -hmm. that are basically sort of leapfrogging over the course of the x number of years into the future so you don't you don't have even the time or the resources or the energy to devote to any one of the exhibitions as much as you would like because Mm -hmm you also have to be already starting to plan the next exhibition after that and the next exhibition after that simultaneously. Yes, absolutely. And you're not just working on exhibitions, you're working on collections, management, rehang of the permanent display, uh, going writing out and projects. Seeing artists. Going out and seeing artists if you've ever got time, writing articles for the bulletins, doing speaking podcasts. at conferences, yes, yeah. doing interviews, yeah. those sort of things. Um, yeah, so it would be great if you could actually sit down and never read a book uninterrupted for a couple of hours, but that's quite 
and ask. That's why I usually go to the library to do this sort of thing, because then you have to be in silence. Well, and there are also even like residencies and travel grants and stuff to help uh, you know curators yeah. sort of get away from the day-to-day hustle and bustle of their office and stuff to be able to actually devote some time and energy and money towards some research that they need to do as well absolutely yeah those are great and and to actually just go out and see the objects because you might see pictures of it you might kind of see it spoken about but until you actually see the objects you can't really get a sense of it or how it's going to how people are going to respond to it as well but you know unfortunately it depends on the exhibition and where the works are and these sort of things and what resources you have available for travel. But um, a lot of the works are going to be a bit of a surprise when they <laughs> turn up because you won't be able to see everything if it's hmm. dotted all around the world. So you have to make some decisions based on just seeing a photograph of it and, and just the size details and whatever other information you can be given about it. All right. So moving forward, so you, were, you, were, you created your exhibition. You now have thought about space and funding. Mm-hmm. What's next? Um, obviously, you've got to work up a proposal. So some idea of your list of works, your main themes, how you kind of see the narrative of the exhibition. So what's the walkthrough for people? You know, what are the main sections? Is it something chronological? Is it something thematic? You develop that as you get, go and you'll change your mind quite a lot of the time as you go. Um, and what's the particular spin you're wanting to put on this this history yeah like, i mean basically it's like why why would somebody off the street come in yeah absolutely well i think you know i think again because i've worked in marketing for many years i always have the audience at the forefront of my mind i can't say that that's always the case for <laughs> every curator as you said you were talking about the kind of the more purist idea that was a nice way to put it but you know some people are very engaged with their subject matter and don't maybe think so much about about the audience coming in and and why it's going to appeal to them. I mean, I think they should, but I think that's a, that's a direction we're going in for museums. I think we're becoming much more audience engaged, much more putting the audience at the forefront of the kind of process of actually developing these programs, which right. I think yeah, there's should a, I mean, be. there's a long history be. of museums just being for, you know, rich white people, mm-hmm. basically. We're rich white men, generally, mm-hmm. as a whole. So, I mean, the idea of basically trying to engage additional communities youth you know whatever sort of any sort of community that traditionally doesn't go to museums and and trying because you know i've constantly reading articles about funding for museums is going down the interest in museums are going down the basically Mm -hmm. the the rich white men that have traditionally funded and helped museums are all sort of dying off Mm -hmm. and like it's just not having so you've sort of got to find new ways to get people in or else something's going to change dramatically yeah Yeah, and I I mean I think it's going positively because I I mean obviously that doesn't sound positive um but in terms of the new young curators and artists coming up and how they're trying to engage with people I mean museums have traditionally been places to impart knowledge and you know someone has uh, who's supposedly more intellectually superior is coming up with these narratives that they're going to force you to subscribe to. And what yep, I like yep. now is you're starting to see it's much more a place for debate and it's a place for people to develop their own ideas based on kind of their own personal experiences and how well, they engage and with it, And I feel like in a way a lot of the like um, statements that I've been reading in museums recently and the, the, you know, the placards on the walls mm-hmm. and, the, and the, even the 
the essays and the and the publications and stuff, they they're a bit more approachable mm-hmm. than they had been 25, 30 years ago. Even they I mean, they were very very intellectual, very very academic, very rigorous in their like quoting of this and that's and historicals, and they're they're becoming a bit more approachable. Mm-hmm now than yeah. they ever have in the past absolutely and approachable doesn't mean that the standards are any lower that they're not underpinned by kind of strong it just it just makes yeah. it so that so somebody like me i've got a, a decent amount of art knowledge a lot of times i would walk in and be like oh my god i feel like an idiot reading this like i don't even understand what they're talking about yeah and obviously yeah unfortunately you still see examples of that i saw a show i won't name what it was not here in prague in london not that long ago and i was surprised because it was very much oh great it's one of those ones where the person who's put it on is trying to make everyone aware of how clever they are but no one can understand what it is and you have to you know eat a thesaurus to be able to understand I remember going to the Smithsonian as a kid and like there were a few exhibitions that I remember being like I have no idea Mm. what these people are talking about I love the imagery and I love the Mm -hmm. artwork it's it's beautiful but I don't know what what's being said here, mm-hmm. like, but and it seems like it's changing. Like, yeah, it, it, I hope it, so. Yeah, I, it, hopefully in some places. Yeah, yeah, exactly in some places. But I, um, yeah, a lot of the curators I see coming up and and starting to get into p- positions where they can actually have a kind of uh, have an effect on the entire sector. They're much more engaged with those things. They're much more open to, to debate. They're less. Um, yeah, they're less eager to kind of prove how clever they are and they're more eager to actually kind of make sure people are enjoying the, or not so much enjoying, but engaging with the subject matter. The idea of the podcast is basically trying to learn how to navigate through all of the different channels that are how to be successful in the arts, mm-hmm. whatever that means, whether it's being a successful gallery, being a successful curator, being a successful artist, how were they all connected? Like, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm repeating myself, but to a certain extent, museums seem like they're sort of off on their own little island. How do, do curator, institutional curators and institutions engage with the arts community at large? Mm-hmm. Well, as I see it, museums, uh, the space they have this space that attracts the general public and they're sort of the gatekeepers between the general public and the artist in many ways and that's the kind of primary display space but also it's a brand and you're associated with that brand and like we were saying you know it um by being in those exhibitions or being collected and held in the collection that's that's part of your cv as an artist or okay so then that lends into it i swear we're not getting to any completed answers because i keep because i keep coming up with additional like wait a minute you're bringing up this other topic so okay how would i'm not saying here in prague necessarily but so how does an artist get into a collection i think it's really focused on a curator taking interest in the work and then developing uh a kind of desire to acquire the work obviously that requires the curator to actually have an acquisitions budget or access to bringing that work in or or to see, uh, showing the work in some sense I'm thinking of one of my friends who um, had one of his works collect, uh, collected and his work was shown in a gallery show in London so from art school he'd uh, got picked up by a gallery they'd shown the work 
the gallery had invited down the curators. The curator was had an acquisitions budget because this was at the V&A um, that they're wanting to develop their collection of photography because and it was specifically with a um, exhibition in mind, so a rehang of the permanent collection showing this sort of history of photography. So they were on the lookout. This is, you know, the artist's dream, the curator actively going out and looking for things with a budget and then acquired the work and included it in the show. So also he was very lucky because they acquired the work and they showed it straight away. Yeah, yeah that is you're shaking your head like, oh, like, yes, if only. Got <laughs> that one in a million. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he came down to drop off the artwork and we went to a local um, uh, Lebanese restaurant and we were eating falafels with it, this thing just on the floor, which I felt a bit uncomfortable about. But now it's safely on the walls or on Good. the racks in the basement. Yeah, but I mean, well, that's the thing is, is like, well, okay, but beyond that, so let's say there's a curator who has an ac- acquisitions fund. Mm-hmm. Is it just the curator? So like literally, can a curator just go, I love this work. I think it's, it should be in the museum's collection. Or is there a, a committee or a board, a group okay. that somehow works on that? Or is it just curator loves the work and they have the budget, buy it? Yeah, so a really good example of this is to um, tell you about what they do at Tate Modern. Because I worked on one of the acquisitions committees. Tate has... Everybody wants to know what, how Tate Modern yeah. works. So Tate came up with this idea about 10 years ago I think to develop these acquisitions committees that were particularly regionally focused and uh, because Tate wanted to become a position itself as a global institution that's representing art globally but in its collection it was really biased towards uh, West European and North American art as a lot of the Western institutions are Um, and I don't know whether they were borrowing this model from someone else but uh, what they decided to do was to um, go out and create acquisitions committees so these are reaching out to wealthy patrons who have usually their own collection of art or have a particular interest on art in art from a particular region usually that means they're from the region and they're doing it because they want to you know promote their national art but you know some people are from complete different region and just for some reason they like to collect this work anyway so um tate has I can't remember whether it's six or seven. I think seven regionally focused acquisitions committees. So one focused on North Africa, Middle East. I was working on the one focused on um, Central and Eastern Europe and Russia. There was a Latin American one, an African committee, uh, Asia Pacific. So that was included Australia, Australasia and kind of all Southeast Asia. I'm sorry, did you just say Australasia? Australasia. Is that yeah. a thing? It includes uh, New Zealand, yes, as well, and the Pacific Islands. All right. No. <laughs> never heard that before go on um so you've thrown me off now <laughs> i'm not very good at geography committees, I haven't got committees. That talking yeah. About the committees yeah so we had these committees and um the model they decided to do was uh, up to uh 40 patrons from these countries or or who had an interest not in from these com- countries and then you'd give uh, a donation basically every year so a certain amount of money uh, and this money will be pooled to acquire art from the region. So you'd have a bed budget of a few hundred thousand pounds per year to buy art from the region. Yeah, and then you'd region. have a committee of, you know, or a small group of curators that are ma- managing that acquisitions committee. So our job would be to go out and to, well, firstly, to come up with a strategy document for which artists we think from the region 
that we want to acquire. They could be historical ones, you know, so 1950s, 1960s gaps in the collection or contemporary artists. So that's a case of reading, going out, seeing work, traveling, you know, getting to know, have a broader view of this region. And then narrowing down, thinking, you know, which which artists do we particularly want to acquire? Also, it was things like, uh, whether you could develop a relationship with an artist's estate, if the artist has passed away, um, whether there's only any pressures to acquire this work if the artist is getting elderly, and obviously you'd ideally like to you know, be able to acquire the work whilst the artist is alive and have be able to have those conversations with them and get them recorded so you really understand the work. So you'd do all this research, come up with this strategy, and then you'd work with, sometimes with the artist, sometimes with the artist's estate, often through their galleries or some gallery that's representing them. Identify, so through those conversations, identify works that are available to buy. So some artists will have kept some work back in their career if they're an older artist. There was one Hungarian artist we worked with and um, we eventually acquired, acquired this work at Tate Modern that they'd held back because they saw it as really a really important part of their career. It was a moment um, that's uh, of transition in their mm-hmm. career yeah. and the artist had said he always wanted to hold this back and put it into a major collection so people could see it and also it you know it then confirmed his legacy he knew this work was being would be represented in this collection so that's very forward-thinking artist to do something like that um, and then we um, as we kind of identified works kind of thought about the budget what we can buy sort of negotiated on the price um, as part of this model at Tate we'd then present the acquisitions to to the patrons and then decide with them through this kind of day-long meeting what works we'd acquire and how we'd yeah and then we'd go through the process of bringing them in based on the votes for that uh, on that committee we did a voting system so that there was kind of you know that the patrons felt like they did have an active kind of involvement in choosing but luckily a lot of the patrons would then any leftover works they often kind of get together and acquire them as as donations and gift them so you know because they're you've built up a really good relationship with these people as patrons of art but are helping it to come into a public institution rather than just through going into private collections although you know often they're doing it because they want to build up their private collection as well i was gonna say that does kind of give them a little bit of an insider track on like we should buy this person before they're put into this collection well you've got to be very careful so you're not actually allowed to tell people because there are very strict rules particularly in the uk as a public institution that you can't be giving commercial advice to because that kind Someone. of is a little bit of a commercial. It's basically saying like these are... Because even if the people aren't, let's say, bought that year, mm-hmm. the other people that didn't get bought, are. it's kind of get sort of tipping off the hand saying like, well, the institution is interested in mm-hmm. these people. So potentially in the next five to 10 years, this this person will be... Yes, except, I mean, we didn't say when we were in the sort of negotiating stage. And, uh, I mean, it's just so a, that's the a difficult will, balance. Yeah, it is that's a difficult all. balance. It is a difficult balance. And we had to tread carefully and we yeah. had to be careful about our conversations and, and not giving things away. I mean, if you're sharing information in a kind of more public forum, then, then it's okay. So by the time we were sharing that information, you know, it was... 
if they wanted to acquire the works, the artist and the gallery would have already known the works were going to be acquired in the collection, usually, pretty much. But, you know, it, 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 is, it was a difficult thing. It was also, you have to be careful because um, other galleries are also sniffing around trying to acquire the same works. So we did have institutions when another leading gallery, uh, you know, would... Uh, another institution is trying to get the same work as... Well, if they get wind of the fact that Tate is quite... Uh, let's say there's quite a lot of um, competition between the Pompidou and Tate, so you uh, have to be very careful not to... Let really? It, yeah. The Pompidou and Tate? To, for acquiring works, because they're both, they're both um, very focused on acquisitions from similar regions. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be careful <laughs> about what information you're sharing with people. It's so fascinating. I, uh, that entire process that you just explained is exponentially more elaborate than <laughs> I imagined it was. Yeah. So so never, let's say pretty much never, it's never about a single curator with a budget just going, I love this, let's put it in our collection. Well, it is. The example I gave of my friend who was building, uh, sold his work, uh, his photograph, and that's one curator had been given a budget to build this collection for this kind of rehang of the permanent collection. And so that's the other side of this. Yeah. So you've got this incredibly <laughs> elaborate multinational thing that the Tate is doing yeah. for the long-term acquisitions and mm -hmm. programming. And then there's sometimes just a single curator with a discretionary fund that yes. basically just says, I want this in the collection. Absolutely. And there was, for instance, I was involved with the, or went to this um, kind of planning meeting for the British Museum and they were, were were acquiring some uh, I think the show's gone ahead now a few years ago so it's fine they were they were acquiring works for an exhibition about uh, communism and communist paraphernalia and particularly kind of working out of the the medals team I think so focused on currency and things like that and they were kind of given a certain amount of budget to acquire these objects for this particular collection which they were very excited about because that's quite a rarity to be given an acquisitions budget to to build up a show one question I generally ask people is, is the trying to find some advice, basically. I mean, in the most basic of senses. What I'm always interested in are things that you experience that you're like, oh, gosh, I wish I had known that and I would not have done this. Like something you learned through a mistake or a misstep or a misunderstanding even or whatever. Mm. Some sort of, you know, some sort of advice for people who are trying to, let's say, be a curator mm. because this is your expertise that you're like, oh, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> or or I made this horrible mistake mm -hmm. of this thing. I recommend nobody else to do it. Um. Well, it's not a horrible mistake and I hope it will uh help in the long run but I think I wish I'd identified what I want to do earlier on so I graduated from music and I spent four years working in entertainment marketing the music industry and theatre and then I decided to go into the visual arts but by then I was already four years into a marketing career and it was very very hard to move across and um so I worked for about 10 years in marketing so I worked another mm. seven or eight years in marketing in visual arts and even though I was doing the masters and the PhD it was really hard to move across into curating because people saw you as being on the business side and actually this isn't this is exactly the same when I worked in theatre I met a lot of people there who were 
saying, oh, you know, I work in marketing or I work in something behind the scenes. I came into this because I wanted to be a writer or because I want to act or something like that. And I think the arts field is surrounded by, you know, people that are... Aspiring to be something that Yeah, aspiring not. to be creatives in some way, but, or, um, is, yeah, aspiring for another role, and then they, they take the role that's available. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that, but I think you've got to decide what you want and how much you want it, because I was determined I wanted to become a curator, but it's been a very long path, and it's still very frustrating because I've had to take lots of sideways steps rather than moving up, and obviously you're seeing other people moving up because they've got onto their straight path and you're still doing this on a circuitous route round. So I think, um, yeah, I probably wish I'd had a career coach earlier because I started doing career coaching about a year and a half ago. Obviously, it's, it's not cheap. Um, uh, oh, when I was in high school, they, <laughs> they gave us a little test, an aptitude test of trying mm-hmm. to tell us what careers to go into. Mm-hmm. They told me that my career uh, was either curating okay. or mortician. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, oh. they all, yeah, I remember doing those. They always threw in a curveball, and random, like, I don't know whether that was to try and persuade you even more that you should go for the other career. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either, but yeah, I mean, yeah. we all we all take little random paths. I mean, I studied psychology, I studied Native American studies, mm-hmm. I did all kinds of different mm. stuff on my path to finding this. Yeah, and I think it makes you a more rounded person. And I think in the end. All of those experiences are helpful and they all feed through into what you end up doing. Um, But certainly if you want to get into a very competitive field, then the earlier you can start getting experience in that. Curating is very competitive. Very competitive, yeah. And if you kind of go off, you know, off path a bit, it's very hard to get back in often. Yeah, I mean, because I could picture an, an easy off path would be going into like the commercial in parts of it because I I have to tell you this like only when I arrived here in the EU in the past couple years did I ever even hear of independent curators curating at galleries Mm -hmm. for percentage of sales have you ever heard of this? At commercial galleries. Commercial galleries. Oh, no, I haven't heard of that. percentage of sales. Maybe that should be my new career. <laughs> I thought that was ridiculous when I first heard it. I was like, that sort of, that destroys the purity <laughs> of, the, of the the curatorial industry. Like, they're, yeah. they're supposed to not be worried about sales. Well, curating is just such a, like, fluid term nowadays. Uh, I the, mean, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is it like, used to mean, like, keeper, and, you know, it used to be well, to a me, collections Yeah, to manager. me, a curator is a person in an ivory tower in an institution that just mm-hmm. thinks all day, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, and some curators purely focus on exhibitions. Some are roving curators doing art art fairs things like that some are purely focused on acquisitions well that's the thing you it know, seems like the, the, some are research curators which is well the curators difficult. has become a much mm. larger industry almost yeah. in and of itself Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not what it used to be it used to be you worked for an institution or a private collection and that's pretty much it like those are pretty much the only roles 30 40 years ago mm-hmm. now you can be independent curators you can do all the things you just listed i mean mm-hmm. there's so much more variables in that individual career mm-hmm. and actually yes the actual job you're going to be doing as part of it whether you're a project manager whether you're a specialist in you know more conservation specialist you know they're all 
it's become very broad it's very hard to explain what you do and it also I think that makes it very hard for you to identify what sort of curator you want to be I feel like only after kind of what five or six years or whatever of doing this you know full time that um, I'm starting to realize exactly what I am as a curator and what what my definition of curator is in the sense of my own career. What is your definition of curator? Oh, I shouldn't have said that because now I've got to answer it. I've realized what something that is really important to me is research-based curating. So actually finding stories, maybe under, under-recognized narratives, forgotten histories. So going into archives and identifying those sort of, those sort of stories and and uh, bringing them to the forefront so having kind of having exhibitions and and attracting it uh, attaching it to wider programming debates conferences that um, make people think more about you know who they are and muddying the waters I'm really interested in the grey areas so you know I'm interested in social history and how art is a part of that I knew that's was my interest you know politics and society and how art links back to that or is a result of that and can contribute to that but uh, I think as a curator I want to keep doing those sort of things you know I want to keep telling those stories I want to keep uh, asking the difficult questions sounds good yeah good 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 luck at it thanks (laughs) well but you said that you've only been doing this for five years um, yes, because I was working on marketing the whole time. And Wait, so. let me get this straight. You've been curi- a, 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 a sort of on the career path of a curator mm-hmm. for five years, and you are now the curator of con- what, what is modern it? and contemporary art. Modern and contemporary yeah. art at the National mm-hmm. Gallery in Prague. Mm-hmm. That seems very fast to get such a position. Um, five years? Yeah, I think it. I mean, to be honest, where you. Where you're a curator, it sort of depends in in the place and the opportunities when they become available. Also, what they're yeah, because those people for. keep those positions for decades. Yeah, and also also what they're looking for. This role came available. It was the first time they'd sort of advertised the role in English, and they were specifically looking to kind of broaden the institution, make it more international. So I think they were kind of interested in bringing bringing in an international staff. I'm kind of the guinea pig for this and they specifically wanted someone with interest and experience in the 1950s 60s 70s which is apparently something that there isn't many people that specialize in that area here even in academia but particularly in curating it's there's more contemporary art curators and there's more kind of curators of early 20th century but I mean even in in the west in western Europe and the United States it's still not so much in the United States, of course, actually. The 1950s and 60s is a key moment. But, uh, yeah, they love it, though. Yeah, but, um, but in terms of Western Europe as well, it's a bit of a... Well, it was for many years to be thought of quite unsexy period, but um, I maybe that's why it appealed to me. You know, I thought, oh, there's not many people telling these stories, but actually it's there was a gray lot area. happening. Yeah, exactly. It was the kind of grey area in the 20th century, I guess. Okay. My last question, the most difficult question oh, I ask. This okay. is the only question I ask every single guest. As part of the podcast, I'm trying to learn how um, an, an artist and a practicing artist can navigate and become successful in the arts world. So what I've done is I've created a quantifiable goal, 
a short-term goal, mm-hmm. though it may be long-term depending, but a short-term goal that is um, I'm trying to get a piece of my artwork, mm-hmm. literally me, on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Oh, okay. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. And so what I ask everybody is for some advice on how to put my career track in the right direction to get to that goal. Mm, and yes. whatever you tell me to do, I will do and I will include, include it in the podcast and keep everybody in a transparent way knowing all my experience is positive and negative of following your advice. Oh, well, so I'd have two answers. Um, the kind of standard answer, I guess, would say, you know, I try and cultivate relationships with the Modern Art Museum and uh, try and identify key curators that uh, kind of, you know, have influence over that. I have which received have this advice already, yes. Yeah, and I've course. already started doing the research on the it. The second way is there was this film um, called sort of my date with drew have you ever seen that it's a brilliant film this guy kind of came up with the idea of he wanted to get a date with drew barrymore he was just a random guy in la and so he basically made a film about trying to get a date with drew barrymore and uh he filled up all these kind of crazy schemes and reenacted all these um, schemes for putting well, it ahead. In, in a way, that's what I'm doing with this podcast. Well, exactly. I, I'm putting into the world every single podcast that airs. I want a piece of mind in the Museum of Modern <laughs> Art and you, everybody's going to get to be part of the so process. So I'd uh, create an artwork that is as a result of that piece, of that um, aim. Oh, the podcast itself is yeah, going to be that. exactly. So it's an so. installation. Actually, we have a we have an artist um, represented in Tate Modern and um, Taos Makacheva. She's a sort of Russian... I'm so bad with names. Yeah. Images Russian artist. But uh, yeah, she actually came to... I think when she was still an art student, she came to Tate Modern with a billboard saying, I want to be in the Tate Modern as an artist, something like that. And she just paraded around and took photos and made it as a um, made it as a kind of artwork. And I don't know whether that work was collected, but certainly her work is now collected. So it's it's a nice little story that she started off doing that. I thought that was bold. Oh, I've heard of the stories of like Julian Schnabel literally calling the curator of the museum (laughs) every day (laughs) for like a year. And I don't know how many people try and just put their pictures on the wall. I think that happens I'm not doing illegal things. Yeah, you wanted to be represented properly. Well, the point is I want want to learn how the art world, how, how the industry functions and how to do it successfully like mm-hmm. appropriately legally mm-hmm. you know how how can any artist who's listening to this podcast go say okay that's a goal of mine i mean mm-hmm. i use the museum of modern art it could be any museum it could be tate it could mm-hmm. be any you know institutional museum how do they achieve that goal mm-hmm. that's the idea is like how that's my short-term goal sort of a tangible outcome yeah. of this a long-term goal is learning how artists can create a sustainable living Mm -hmm. because that's the thing we all want yeah like if i had a choice between i could have a piece in the museum of modern art or i could make a living at my art for the rest of my life but i can't have both Mm -hmm. i'll take the living the living yeah i mean it's on the other side as well you know so many curators it's not a well-paying job in most 
in most sectors and uh, and a lot of people are you know working independently as well and I think uh, a lot of curators I meet have the dream of maybe doing it part-time and doing more writing and more you know more of their own research. Do you have to do any of your own like grant writing and all this kind of stuff to get your projects funded and all this or or are there designated grant writers here in the institution to do it for you? Um, There was at Tate there was a development team here we have um, a international partnerships team but it's quite a new team that's um, been introduced about three years ago so they're starting to develop doing those sort of things as well but uh, yeah you know so, so some institutions if they're kind of bigger and there's larger infrastructure there for kind of going after private money and donations yes they they have a team that are actually in charge of getting money <laughs> through any means possible but that's the, i mean that's the thing that makes it all go around yeah. i mean it's always the money the patrons the government the whatever kind of funding and everything because like it it just doesn't work without it yeah unfortunately it's the thing that people who love coming to a gallery and seeing the arts is not the bit they really want to hear about or they want to acknowledge and they think it sort of pollutes their experiences they want to think of us I think often you know well, having... I, I grew up with the Smithsonian yeah. so everything was free I could literally just walk yeah. into all of those museums and just like it's the people's museum yeah no that's fantastic yeah and we have that in London as well it's such a yeah great but most resource. people in the world don't have that so but know. I mean the the London galleries have that because they have a commercial wing most of them and it's actually been proved that if you in- introduce ticket sales you'll probably lower the amount of people coming in to eat in the cafe and um, buying things in the shop. So actually it levels out. So you're monetizing people's time in the museum in different ways. So that's probably totally killed everyone's appreciation now. But, you know, it makes people feel like like they're getting something for free. But they are actually, because of that, they're more likely to buy and they're more likely to spend more time there. So, yeah, it is quite clever. It is. I mean, every, everything's a business. Everything needs to be paid for in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. So, whether I mean, because like if we sit here and say, like, oh, we want our museums for free, well, somebody's going to have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So, it's going to, chances are it's probably going to end up being a tax mm-hmm. or some, some way, or the government's going to support it in some way. So, I mean, one way or another, you're going to pay for a museum. Yeah. Like, so whether you pay for it literally out of your wallet or whether you pay for it in you know hidden in some taxes or mm-hmm. through some government budget or whatever from somebody else it's got to be paid for mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the places need insurance they need to have the lights on they need mm-hmm. to be climate controlled like i mean yeah it's just impossible i mean i have a friend who has a private museum in north carolina and like they had so many problems because it was this purely private museum literally named after the family and so mm-hmm. it was just theirs and nobody else would give money to it oh of course yeah because it's their museum yeah it's so no, like, why would anybody else recognition yeah. yeah so like why would else? so so like they had a real tough time like keeping the museum sort of mm-hmm. momentum and going and building mm-hmm. and, and, and growing because well nobody else would be willing or interested to give money or support it because it has somebody else's mm-hmm. name on it yeah that's an interesting balance (laughs) yeah i suppose if you're something like the national gallery you know it's It's a little different a little easier yeah yeah, because like you could you could even award like oh we'll we'll name the exhibition hall if you don't give us 10 million whatevers yeah yeah but it's interesting um here in czech republic because you know it's a post-communist country they haven't had those years of kind of commercialism uh that you've had has been building over a long period in 
in Western Europe and certainly in the United States where these, you know, something like MoMA was started as a private institution in 1929 with, you know, Rockefeller money and... Uh, and, but uh, luckily, he yeah, didn't right. name it Rockefeller. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> then it might yeah. have more, much more difficulty with it. Yeah, who knows whether that was part of, uh, that was uh, planned. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. No, it's really, been really enjoyable. <laughs>